a station that broadcasts in all kinds of weather, transporting you to sunnier places when you need it. 90.9 FM, to be enjoyed at any temperature. Broadcasting on Treaty 7 land and on Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. This is not to say that, that armed struggle is now more effective than nonviolent struggle. As you can see, actually, armed conflicts have actually declined in their effectiveness as well during the same period, meaning like all kinds of resistance are becoming less effective. If you look at their relative success rates, Nonviolent resistance is now three times more effective than armed resistance. So in fact, relatively speaking, it's still much more effective to use nonviolent struggle than armed struggle than it was even in the average over the course of the time. That's Erica Chenoweth, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Erica Chenoweth on civil resistance in the 21st century. The success and failure rates of civil resistance movements might seem like something studied at the Army War College, but social scientists and political activists always want to know why some tactics work and some don't. Boycotts, street protests, armed conflict, nonviolent and non-cooperation tactics were seeing myriad forms of resistance as governments place greater restraints on freedom everywhere. But to what effect? Today, we can measure our cliques and consumer trends at all levels of the economy. So why not look at resistant movements' metrics of success? Whether the Velvet Revolution in Armenia, or the ouster of the Shah of Iran, or the recent failed attempt to overthrow the U.S. presidential election results. The timing, the tactics, the strategy, and the nature of the political opponent are all key factors. A specialist on civil resistance is our guest today, Erica Chenoweth. She teaches human rights and international affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School, where she directs the Nonviolent Action Lab at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. She spoke at Wellesley College in Massachusetts in January 2020. And now, Erica Chenoweth. I guess I'll, I'll start by telling you a little bit about um, why I got interested in this topic, or maybe more appropriately, how I got interested in it. Um, so um, when I was working on my PhD, I was mostly interested in terrorism of political violence, uh, the idea that people... Uh, are often resorting to political violence to achieve their goals, in part because they have no other options, uh, because it can be highly effective in some contexts. Uh, And the starting point for that research was just um, kind of a set of core assumptions that the only reason people use violence in the first place is precisely because it can be really uh, useful for them in in achieving uh, major goals. And in fact, if you wanted to achieve major kind of revolutionary or transformational goals in society, violence is part of that always. And so um, these were assumptions that were either explicit or implicit in a lot of different scholarly literature. Certainly many um, 
philosophers of revolution or practitioners of revolution had made the argument that violence is innate to revolutionary processes and that uh, if you really want to make big change in the world, you have to show that you mean it by using violence. So um, that was basically the, the intellectual framework that I had uh, when I was sort of, I think, accidentally invited to a, <laughs> a workshop on nonviolence that was being put on by a group called the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, which is a, still an educational foundation in D.C., and they, they focus on um, research and, and theory and practice of nonviolent action, just kind of studying it and then um, helping others get access to, to current knowledge about it. And I say I was accidentally invited because one of my terrorism uh, scholar colleagues forwarded me the announcement of the workshop and was like, hey, here's the other side of the coin. Maybe you'd be interested since you're trying to finish your PhD. And so I just applied to the workshop, and they sent free books and said there would be free food at the workshop. So um, <laughs> still quite motivated, I should say, by <laughs> promises of free food and free books. Um, and uh, so I, I went to the workshop, and, and people were making what I thought were some fairly um, kind of bold and potentially unfounded claims, like nonviolent resistance can be as effective or even more effective than armed struggle in achieving revolutionary outcomes, that um, nonviolent resistance uh, works as well or even better than armed insurgency when you're fighting a truly brutal opponent that is willing to crack down violently against civilians. Um, and I didn't know that there was really any systematic evidence to support these claims. I mean, there were certainly some very impressive cases that people were relying on, like in the Philippines People Power Movement or um, the Serbian Anti-Milosevic Movement, otherwise known as the Bulldozer Revolution. But I could also think of lots of examples where nonviolent action had failed, like in Tiananmen Square and other places. And I could also think of myriad examples where violent insurgencies had done had, had actually won. So the Russian Revolution, the Algerian Revolution, etc. And so, um, you know, that kind of uh, precipitated a series of conversations between me and some of the other participants. Um, and uh, one participant in particular, a woman named Maria Stefan, and I kind of sat down and, and had an argument one night about it. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, what somebody should do is count. Like, really, just like start putting together a database of like all of the mass nonviolent movements and all of the armed movements, which already exist, because scholars collect data on things that explode. I mean, that we've been, <laughs> we have good data on this back to like the 11th century, um, but we didn't have any data at all on people organizing mass nonviolent collective civil disobedience, non cooperation, et cetera. Um, and so uh, basically, she and I decided to do it. and. Uh, what we did was we, we started with um, just looking from 1900 to 2006, which is the year in which we met. There's no other arbitrary reason um, for the end date there. But um, we went from 1900 to 2006, and we put together a list of cases where people had used, um, civilians had basically prosecuted a conflict actively without weapons and without threatening or um, doing physical harm to other people using protests, strikes, boycotts, non-cooperation, and other forms of nonviolent action. Um, and we only looked at cases where they did this for what you would call maximalist goals, meaning they're trying to overthrow um, a national leader or a regime, or they're trying to create independent territory by uh, becoming independent from a colonial power or an imperial power, by kicking out a foreign military occupation, or by seceding 
And um, the reason we chose these maximalist goals is precisely because of that skepticism that these are the types of things that people use violence for, right? And so um, we didn't look at reformist campaigns like the civil rights movement or um, gender um, expansion, uh, gender rights expansion movements or things like that. We just looked at these maximalist campaigns to start out. And we looked only at cases where at least a 1,000 people had already been visibly participating, either in armed or unarmed action, so that we weren't like comparing cases where there were insurgent groups compared to one person standing in front of a tank um, engaging in civil disobedience. It's not a really fair comparison. So we're only looking at what you might call major maximalist campaigns of armed and unarmed action. Now, Maria and I, um, you know, basically wrote a book about this in 2011, and I've been continually uh, collecting data on it since then. And what I wanted to show you is uh, these data that have just wrapped up uh, collecting through the last uh, decade. And one of the things that's incredibly powerful here is this is showing just the onsets of these campaigns, like how many of them occur in a given decade. And what you can see is that basically since the 1980s, people have relied more on nonviolent action, as much or more on nonviolent action as a way to uh, pursue these maximalist claims than armed action. And in fact, the last decade that just finished was by far the most tumultuous decade on record if what you're looking at is people power movements, right? So. If we were only looking at uh, armed struggle, we'd actually see a, a decline in conflict onsets. But if you count civil resistance, where people are using these unarmed methods to prosecute their conflicts, um, we're actually seeing a dramatic rise in it. And that might um, actually make some sense to you. If you sort of look around the world today, it feels like a tumultuous time. And that's borne out by the data as well. Now, what about their success rates? In the aggregate, Nonviolent resistance campaigns over that entire period, 1900 through 2019, 50, about 50% of them succeeded. And about 23% of armed campaigns succeeded. So they, in, the, in the aggregate, they were twice as effective as their armed counterparts. So I was the, definitely the wrong one <laughs> in, the, in the partnership with Maria Steffen. Um, but one of the things that's, uh, I think, very interesting and what I want to focus the topic on, uh, the talk on today is the fact that even as civil resistance has begun uh, to overtake armed struggle as like the primary form of contention in the world today, in the last two decades, it's also begun to decline in its effectiveness. So more people are now using it, but also uh, just as that's happening, it started to decline in its absolute effectiveness rates. So one of the things I, I want to caveat uh, really quickly is that uh, this is not to say that, that armed struggle is now more effective than nonviolent struggle. As you can see, actually, armed conflicts have actually declined in their effectiveness as well during the same period, meaning like all kinds of resistance are becoming less effective. And actually, if you look at their relative success rates, um, nonviolent resistance is now three times more effective than Non, than armed resistance. So in fact, relatively speaking, um, uh, it's still much more uh, effective to use nonviolent struggle than, than armed struggle um, than it was even in the average over the course of the time. So um, the puzzle that I want to sort of organize the rest of the talk about is the, the question of why is nonviolent resistance increasing in, in its frequency but also declining in its <coughs> success uh, in the last decade. 
And so what I want to do is, is first walk us through three different key parts of the argument. The first is uh, walking us through the reasons why we think nonviolent resistance has been more um, successful in the past. Um, the second part is what is, was different in the last decade from 2010 to 2019. And then um, I'll just make some wild speculations uh, at the end of the talk about where I think this is all headed. So um, in drilling into these data, we have a lot of um, interesting um, variables that accompany each of these uh, data points. Uh, and basically, over the course of the last 15 years, um, I've come to sort of narrow down uh, the things that make nonviolent resistance successful into four different key points. Um, the first is that nonviolent resistance movements tend to succeed when they are able to build large and diverse um, participation. Um, and the reason why large and diverse participation is important is because it then does three things for the movements. Um, the first is that it allows them to create defections in the opponent's pillars of support. Most nonviolent movements win because of defections. Um, that means that somebody who used to be considered an opponent gets out of the way of the movement or even joins the movement. Defections are much more likely to happen when movements are very large and broad-based, and I'll get into a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, the third thing that effective movements do is they tend to maintain discipline, even as repression against them increases. So they are able to sort of maintain resilience and stick to their own plan, maintain their organizational infrastructure, and maintain their commitment to nonviolent action, broadly speaking, even as things start to really heat up against them. And then the fourth thing that they tend to do is they tend to use a variety of, of nonviolent methods. So in other words, these are not just protest movements. Uh, protest movements use protests. Um, sometimes they use other things too, but they're primarily focused on protests. Um, nonviolent resistance um, is a much broader category of action. Um, and in fact, non-cooperation strikes and, and the withholding of, of cooperation from status quo practices and institutions is a very powerful form of nonviolent action. Um, so when movements shift or they sequence their tactics in a way that build pressure while minimizing exposure <coughs> to risk, um, that's when they're more likely to win. So let me walk through each of these four aspects in a uh, for a moment. So the first observation here is that campaign participation rates that is like the, the number of people relative to the overall national population who participate in, um, in nonviolent resistance is a really important um, factor in explaining their success rates. So in other words, the, the larger the campaign is, the more likely it is to, to win. And this is something that scholars of revolution have known for like a really long time. Um, there was a book that was written in 1995 by a political scientist named Mark Lickbach and he argued that um, there was something called the 5% rule, which is that usually in a revolutionary context, only 5% of the population is probably going to participate in a movement. Like, you can't really get that more people uh, to show up for a collective action than that because of free riding and, and other things. Um, but he also argued that you probably don't need more than 5% of a population to rise up for a government to fall. In fact, 5% of a population is a huge number. In the US, this would be like 13 and a half million people rising up. Um, so it's, it's, it's big. Now, um, that was a speculation. He didn't have any data to back that up. And uh, when we look at our data, 
uh, it actually turns out the number was smaller. It was three and a half percent of the population. So once once three and a half percent of a national population rose up against um, any of these governments, none of these campaigns failed. Um, so that's a pretty modest but impressive figure. Um, not very many campaigns got to that critical mass threshold. Um, many of them succeeded with fewer um, uh, of the population. But this is just to say the more people who participate, the more likely the campaign is to succeed. <clears throat> more recently, I've done some work um, with a political scientist named Margarita Belgioso, um, where we've tried to look more at um, the way that the building of pressure can affect um, these outcomes. And what we did was we used the, the concept of momentum, which in linear physics is simply mass times velocity. So mass being the number of people um, participating in collective action on any given day, and velocity meaning the, the, the number of events that took place in the previous seven days. <clears throat> so we tried to use those sort of as proxies. And it turns out that it's like a really powerful predictor of government overthrow, essentially, on any given day. Um, so as people build momentum um, and this mass, uh, through mass of the national population and, and, and sort of uh, concentrate their efforts in a week, um, meaning they're having many, many different protest or strike or social conflict actions in, in the previous week, they're much more likely to succeed on that exact day. Um, so this is a very interesting but intuitive way that movements can sort of track um, their momentum in real time um, and, and have a, a, an indicator of, of whether they're kind of increasing their pressure or decreasing their pressure. Now, <clears throat> as was mentioned during the intro, um, I have some ongoing work about um, like how important it is to have this sort of inclusive participation because you can imagine a movement... Um, that was basically totally homogenous or ex excluding of certain people in the population is not actually having the same political power as a movement that was inclusive and broad-based. Um, and a lot of scholars have argued that, that diversity of participation is really important in a lot of these movements because it gives them uh, access points and leverage to different sources of power in the society. Um, so uh, Zoe Marks and I have been doing research on... Um, on the extent of women's participation in particular, or women-identified activists on the front lines. So not doing support roles, which is um, what a lot of people think of um, in the literature around women's participation, but women's frontline participation, um, meaning they're either armed combatants on the front lines fighting alongside men, um, or they are um, basically women out front organizing and um, facing off security with secure security forces in the context of mass demonstrations, and we found that um, basically the higher the the um, degree or extent of women's participation, the more likely the movements are to succeed. Um, I'll also preview some of the the other findings about the aftermath of these campaigns. Basically, um, so the higher rate of women's participation is going to make campaigns more likely to succeed in the end. Um, but whether women's empowerment expands or contracts in the aftermath of the conflicts also really depends on whether they succeed. So <clears throat> if, the, if women are participating in very high numbers and mass movements and the movements win, um, then we do see a general increase in women's empowerment and like even the five years after the campaign is over, which makes some sense. If they were part of the the sort of revolutionary process. They win key kind of um, uh, positions of power and get to influence the ultimate outcome. They may make broader claims about gender equality. 
Um, but when women participate in very high numbers and the movements fail, um, the patriarchal backlash is severe, meaning that um, women's empowerment actually contracts to worse than it was before the campaign started. So um, this means that you know, when you see authoritarian backlash like we're seeing around the world right now, um, when it has this very patriarchal um, aspect to it or very misogynistic aspect to it, it's often precisely because there were women-led movements um, that didn't actually succeed. Uh, and they're now essentially being punished um, in a way that um, you know, affects the, the nature of egalitarian democracy and other things as well, but that um, we think is, is partly identified by how women showed up to make these claims on behalf of the nation um, and that they're basically um, being forced back into more traditional gender roles in the aftermath. So um, nevertheless, when women participate um, in very high numbers in mass campaigns, nonviolent or violent, the campaigns are much more likely to succeed. And why is that? Um, we argue basically that broad-based participation um, in any kind of campaign allows that campaign to have access to um, social power and political power um, that's not possible if the campaign is very small and very homogenous. Um, and like I said at the beginning, nonviolent resistance typically works because of defections. So defections are when you get um, a member of, of the opponent's side to essentially change their behavior um, so that they're not continuing to support the status quo. And here you, you really sort of have to take on board a set of assumptions about what power is. So <clears throat> um, there is a monolithic view of power, which is that power is essentially um, always entrenched and then self-reinforcing. Um, that uh, power is basically something that once you get it, you can expand it and you can get others to follow you. Um, and it becomes very difficult to penetrate or to disrupt that power. Um, there's another view of power, which is a non-monolithic view, um, which suggests that any power holder, no matter how tyrannical and dictatorial and discriminatory they are, um, is 100% reliant on the cooperation of people that reside in different pillars of support. Um, so this is suggesting that power isn't permanent, um, that the legitimate um, right to be in power has to be constantly replenished, um, both to the base of supporters, but also to these critical pillars of support like security forces, economic and business elites, state media, civilian bureaucrats, cultural and religious authorities, um, and many others that, you know, based on the context, are essentially supporting and maintaining the status quo. And they're doing that by essentially um, going along with the way things are on a daily basis, making hundreds of decisions a day to basically go along with um, the status quo. And the argument here is that mass nonviolent civil resistance that is targeting those pillars of support and disrupting them and attempting to push them into a different direction can actually really weaken the opponent's hold on power, uh, particularly when there are strong legitimacy claims uh, that disrupt the opponent's legitimacy claims, um, and that people who reside in these pillars of support can make really like key momentary decisions to not go along with things in a way that can have really huge macro consequences. In societies where there is deep polarization um, or there is um, like minority rule, uh, minority rule that's racist and that discriminates against um, very um, large proportions of the population as happened in South Africa, for example, um, during the anti-apartheid movement, um, you know, these defections 
are not going to happen with security forces. So um, in, in apartheid South Africa, um, there was not going to be any hope for people in black townships to um, get defections among white supremacist racist police. So they didn't focus on white supremacist racist police. They focused on economic and business elites. And they organized mass boycotts of white-owned businesses. Um, They created their own economic cooperatives that would create self-sufficiency within the townships and undermine um, the economic uh, dependence uh, that the South African state had on uh, black uh, purchasing power. And uh, this forced the, the country into crisis. Um, and white business owners were the defectors in this case. They went to um, the, uh, anti, the apartheid regime um, and the, the different ruling parties and got um, the pro-apartheid party leaders basically thrown out of the party and elevated reformers um, that were willing to meet with the ANC and Mandela and decriminalize the ANC and then open the pathway for elections. So in this case, it was definitely economic and business owners that were the crucial pillar. Every different conflict um, has to sort of do its own, uh, every different movement has to do its own assessment of what the the critical pillars are and then what the feasible pillars are um, for them to affect with their disruptive power. So um, repression uh, happens almost enti- you know, almost every time there's a movement of this kind because they are making maximalist claims, they're large scale, they're very threatening to the opponent. And so there's a question about uh, what do movements do when they are repressed? Now, um, repression uh, doesn't necessarily undermine nonviolent campaigns to the same degree that it does armed campaigns. Repression against armed campaigns um, can be highly effective um, when it's very um, intense and indiscriminate. But it is very difficult to have intense and indiscriminate repression against unarmed people. Um, and there are two reasons for this. The first is the political risk. So um, if you're a dictator uh, and you are facing a mass nonviolent uprising that's clearly committed to nonviolent action that's growing in its popularity and support base that involves people that you thought were on your side. Um, It is very difficult for you to decide with confidence that when you order your police and military to go out there and crack down that they're going to follow the order. And so many times uh, they don't even make that order, right? So they don't even call out their military to engage in that kind of action because they're afraid that they'll defect. And if they defect, it's the end of the regime for sure. So um, they tend to rely on more maybe subtle uh, or smart forms of repression, like targeting particular individuals and jailing them or trying to discredit them, trying to undermine their legitimacy, um, trying to undermine uh, undermine the legitimate claims of the movement by saying it's a foreign conspiracy or they're terrorists trying to use agents provocateurs to destabilize the movement from within, infiltrate the movement, surveil activists. They do these things because they know that using the brute fort blunt instrument is way too politically risky. It can backfire. You can get defections. Um, the other uh, reason why uh, repression is more difficult against these campaigns is that it's practically hard, actually, to suppress all the people all the time. Movements that are very large are really hard to suppress um, using, using force. <clears throat> this is that 5% rule thing again, which is that there's, 
you know, most government um, security sectors are nowhere near 5% of the population in their, in their size. So they don't have the, um, the wherewithal to do it. And the other thing is that very large movements are able to sort of shift their methods of, from methods of concentration, where people assemble mass, um, to methods of dispersion, where people stay away from places they're expected to go. Though the methods of dispersion, like stay-at-homes or boycotts or other forms of non-cooperation, are really hard to repress um, because it's much harder to make somebody s- stop doing something they're doing than to make them start doing something that they're not doing. Um, so uh, a, an example of this um, might come from, say, the Iranian Revolution, where um, during the sort of uh, pivotal hundred days of the Iranian Revolution back in uh, 1978 and 9, um, the first 90 or so days were funeral processions, mass demonstrations, um, and other forms of street action. Um, some non-cooperation among business owners and such, but, but largely it was um, street demonstrations that were repressed, and then more people would come out for the funeral two days later, um, there was a lot of killing that went on. Um, the security forces were literally assassinating religious leaders as they spoke um, to large crowds. There was one very dramatic scene where um, there was a, um, a, a, a religious leader who was speaking and was shot, and another one got up and took his place and carried on. Um, it, very dramatic scenes like this. It's probably one of the largest popular revolutions Um, uh, we've seen in the last hundred years there were probably 10% of the population of Iran that participated in this revolution against the Shah who was backed by the United States so um, essentially what what ultimately happened is it was just becoming too dangerous to continue doing these street demonstrations in in the midst of this level of violence and and with US backing right so um, what happened is that the finally convinced oil workers in the countryside to go on strike and they paired the strike with the stay-at-home demonstration. So um, the internal security services knew who the oil workers were, and they went to their homes, put them out on the streets, marched them to the oil fields, and when they got to the oil fields, they worked at half pace. So then the next day, the same thing happened. They stayed at home, security services went to their homes, dragged them to the street, marched them to the oil fields, where they worked at half pace. After about four days of this, the security services started to call in sick like pretty high numbers of them were calling in sick. And um, they didn't want to do it. They, they knew these people. They figured the oil fields aren't pumping. I'm not going to get my overtime that I'm promised. And I don't want to, you know, run into these people in the streets um, after this event. And so they defected. And then the Shah um, was overthrown. You're listening to Erica Chenoweth on civil resistance in the 21st century. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, printed transcripts, MP3s, and PDFs of this program and our special Howard Zinn book offer. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, alternativeradio.org. You can give us a call at one 800 Triple four, one nine seven seven. Now the Iranian Revolution is tricky because it was nonviolent largely up to the moment of success, and then became a very violent um, kind of 
post-revolutionary time um, and installed a government that um, that was decidedly sort of anti-liberal uh, in, in many respects. But the, the process that built to that moment was largely nonviolent and, and shows us the power of sequencing tactics in this effective way. So movements have choices um, when they face repression um, from high-risk to low-risk actions. So um, concentrated methods are the ones where people go to a particular place, right? Concentrated methods like a sit-in or a nonviolent occupation, a march, demonstration, rally, or trying to volunteer for imprisonment to overwhelm the jails, these are um, probably the highest-risk actions. And many of them are high-risk but only symbolic, right? So they don't actually impose direct costs on the opponent, but they make for a, a very dramatic political uh, cost uh, for a moment. Um, the problem is if, if movements only rely on these, that they become predictable, kind of ordinary. They don't have the same punch or kind of symbolic power that they did when they started. And so, um, and they can also really expose a lot of people to risk. So when you see the kind of crackdowns that cost many lives in a single shot, they're usually um, these high-risk acts of commission. Um, there are also um, concentrated methods of omission. This is like a go-slow demonstration. So where people are on the move, um, which is a little more difficult, um, but it's also um, you know, not doing something you're expected to do, which is, is continue. Silent demonstrations and marches can be very powerful um, because they, um, they demonstrate a level of discipline in a movement that is, can be very threatening to opponents that are trying to make the movement chaotic. Then there are these dispersed methods. These are the ones where people are essentially being safe, there are these cats. I think this is not just because I thought it would be good to include cats in the presentation at some point, which might also be a totally legitimate thing. But, um, but actually, uh, these cats are in, they are street cats in Rabat, Morocco. And the reason I put them there is because um, there is an independence movement um, in Western Sahara. Has anyone heard of it? The Western Saharan Independence Movement, um, which is now claimed and occupied by Morocco. Um, and uh, it is illegal to, um, to organize on behalf of, of uh, Sawari independence at this point. It is illegal to uh, fly the colors of the Sawari na- national movement at this point. It is a very restrictive um, expression environment. Um, and so these activists um, decided that they were going to announce that they were going to violate the law against flying the flag. Um, and they were going to fly the flag on a given day. And so uh, what they did was they rounded up a lot of stray cats and tied the flags onto the cats' tails um, and then uh, made a Facebook page and made it look like this was going to be a big deal with a bunch of activists showing up, you know, um, committing civil disobedience. So the riot troops came with their stormtrooper outfits, and then these cats were released, right? Not a single person was in... In, in view, but these cats are running up and down the alleyways and the stormtroopers are just chasing them, you know, and they're up and down the alleyways. Um, this is an act of omission because, or commission that is also an act of dispersion. You're doing something um, that they're trying to stop, but you're not exposing yourself at all to risk, right? Um, so this, it's, it, again, it's a symbolic action, but it's also a dilemma action because you know, they have to either chase cats around the alleyways or let the flag fly. Like, it's a terrible set of choices, right, for the opponent, and it's humiliating, and it affects morale. Again, doesn't hurt anybody, just affects morale. 
Um, then um, there's dispersed methods of omission. This is like consumer boycotts or the stay-at-home strike um, or shutoffs of, of electricity or power uh, collectively. Okay. So um, the last thing that successful campaigns do, as I mentioned, is that they tend to stick to their plan and maintain nonviolent discipline even when repression uh, increases against them. So what you hear, see here is just an aggregate breakdown in the success rates of, of nonviolent campaigns that's, that maintain nonviolent discipline throughout, nonviolent campaigns that develop a violent flank, um, which means that they start to accept uh, or embrace a certain degree of street fighting um, or kind of armed confrontation at times among a tiny sector of the movement, or they coexist with um, an armed group that's claiming that it's acting on behalf of the movement, like happened in, in, in South Africa, for example. And then there's the violent campaign. So you can see that, um, that nonviolent campaigns alone are still having the highest success rates, followed by nonviolent campaigns with violent flanks, and then followed by um, armed campaigns. So what has changed in the last decade? The first thing is that, uh, contrary to what you might think, um, the average participation rate for nonviolent campaigns has actually gone down uh, in, in uh, the last two decades. We see movements that, um, that have large protest actions. Um, I would argue that the social media environment has made it easier for people to organize large-scale peak events on fairly short notice. Like, if, if we decided we were going to organize an event for tomorrow, um, and we put our heads to it, and we dedicated all our resources for the rest of today to setting up a social media presence for this event and calling on people to turn out. We could probably, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, we could get like 50,000 people to turn out in Boston, probably. I bet we could do it together. Um, maybe more. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean we would have developed any kind of long-term organizational capacity, any type of meaningful, um, integrated commitment, <clears throat> to continue showing up, we wouldn't know who was there. Uh, we wouldn't have time to inform people about the claims, the history of the conflict, why their participation is so necessary, why we can't go back. There are all kinds of things that are sort of slow cooking in nonviolent campaigns uh, that are kind of overlooked or undermined even um, by the tendency to focus on just you know, snapping a huge number of people into the streets at, at a given time. It also overemphasizes street demonstrations and protests as a form of action, as opposed to potentially more powerful forms of non-cooperation. The 90s, which was also the year of the greatest uh, rates of victory of nonviolent campaigns, were also uh, the decade of the highest participation rates, and they've gone down since then. The second thing is that um, nonviolent discipline has also started to decline. So, um, in fact, uh, the, the last decade had the, the lowest rate since the 1950s in terms of nonviolent discipline um, among campaigns. So that just means there's more nonviolent campaigns that also are using street fighting and other techniques alongside nonviolent action. Um, the third thing is, uh, is, is based on resilience to repression. And, and I would argue that... <coughs> that uh, a lot of different governments have basically learned that they can't use the, brunt, the blunt brute force instrument of, of military power against unarmed civilians. And so instead, um, they are relying on uh, more divide and rule tactics. Those different elements of smart repression, which I mentioned to you, um, there's actually a, a, a sort of accidental reveal of different techniques of state repression that took place um, 
in 2005 when our colleague Regine Spector was sitting in on a on a meeting of um, like oil producing nations and they had like this side session on how best practices in suppressing nonviolent dissidents <laughs> and she just wrote down everything that they were sharing and and um, this is basically the list right so um, they admitted that they they almost find it they, they find it universally helpful to blame foreigners and outsiders for domestic sources of conflict to criminalize uh, unarmed oppositionists if you can characterize them as traitors, terrorists, coup plotters, uh, and the like. Um, if there are opposition leaders that seem like they're easy to co-opt, co-opt them. Try to get them to join a political party and then get them into the legislature. Certainly paying off the inner entourage, finding those key pillars of support that they don't want to defect and giving them a bunch of money. Counter-mobilizing their own nonviolent supporters to show, hey, you protesters aren't the only game in town. We've got our own protesters. They think we're legitimate, and we're going to fight you at your own game. Um, they also will plant plainclothes police as agents provocateurs to try to upset that nonviolent discipline and sow divisions within the campaign. Um, repression is often delegated to um, people that aren't necessarily visibly associated with the state, um, so different um, people that are paid to do it. <clears throat> There's an attempt to use terror to scare people into submission, um, and usually by making an example of one or two people as opposed to trying to repress everyone. Um, certainly there's a higher uh, capacity for deeply personal levels of surveillance, especially because we all carry our own personal surveillance devices around on our wrists or in our pockets uh, everywhere we go. Um, we, uh, they, they keep out independent journalists or people that could tell the, the real story. Um, they use uh, legitimate laws, uh, pseudo-legitimate laws and practices to reinforce their grip on power. So this is something like the Russian government saying that if you are a civil society organization that receives aid from outside, you have to register as a foreign agent, right? Um, and so that has really like completely destroyed the civil uh, society sector in, in Russia and many other countries that have been using um, this type of approach. Um, definitely in the United States, there have been attempts in, in more than 30 states to introduce legislation um, uh, using terrorism laws to prosecute nonviolent protesters who use what they call economic terrorism tactics, which include things like blocking a highway. Right? So, um, and there are also laws um, that have been introduced or legislation that's been introduced to make it legal for people to drive their cars into crowds of protesters if they're blocking the way. Right? So these are these are laws that are being considered by legal institutions in the United States um, and um, that are, what, to say the least, pseudo-legitimate at best, right? Um, and then, uh, of course, sharing information on how to suppress dissidents and, and their allies. So um, another thing I think that is a trend is that, as I mentioned or alluded to shortly ago, the, uh, there is an, an emphasis on, on marches, demonstrations, and protests, those kind of symbolic methods of concentration um, that are easy to mobilize, uh, that send a message, but, um, but that also don't necessarily begin to impose direct costs on, on the status quo. Um, my colleague Jeremy Pressman and I have been collecting data on every, um, every crowd that has assembled in the United States since Trump's inauguration. And... Uh, we started by accident uh, the day after at the during the women's march, um, where we were both surprised to see how many people had turned out in our cities where we lived at the time. I was living in Denver; he was in Hartford, 
And so we came home and on Facebook, we're like, hey, is anybody collecting a list? Let's start a Google spreadsheet. And then I think George Takai tweeted that there was a spreadsheet or something. And then we got 6,000 emails overnight, you know, like, count us, count, you know. So, so <clears throat> we started to put together this database. It's called the Crowd Counting Consortium. We're always looking for volunteers. If you want to help us crowd count, uh, count crowds, it's the best thing you can do to, like, give yourself hope. Um, <clears throat> I would say that... Um, you know, one of, one of the things that comes out from, from this practice is just seeing how much um, there is an, uh, an emphasis on, on protests and marches and demonstrations when people talk about, you know, building political power and, and organizing, et cetera. Um, this is not universal in the United States, uh, certainly, but the, the major moments of, of dissent in the United States are almost always organized around a march or a demonstration, not a strike or something like that. Um, I will say, though, that the, um, the enough walkouts for gun control was, was a really important moment uh, in the United States. And part of the reason is because it was the largest single-day demonstration, if you count the number of sites of demonstration, um, as the metric. The Women's March in 2017 was the largest single-day demonstration by the number of protesters. So there were well over four... 0.2 million protesters, probably more like 6 million protesters, which is about 1.8% of the U.S. population. We've never had something that big on a single given day. <clears throat> but the Enough walkouts had 4,400 sites of walkouts individually on a single day. Um, these were, you know, the walkouts for gun control. Maybe some of you participated in the walkouts. Um, I can tell you that there were at least a dozen home schools where children walked out on their parents. Um, there were 150 kindergartens where five-year-olds walked out on their kindergarten. Um, there were hundreds, thousands of elementary schools, thousands of, um, of high schools and middle schools, and then a handful of college campuses. And, you know, I don't want to decry the power of protests and walking out um, or these other methods because they are very important. Like, people being seen... Uh, to do something in a critical moment is very important. I'll tell you, um, when, uh, when we were collecting data on the Women's March, um, we got an email from an uh, 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 assisted living facility in Encinitas, California, um, where they sent us like a short video clip and said there were 50 of us octogenarians marching in a circle in the lobby. And we couldn't go to Los Angeles because of our mobility issues, but we had our granddaughters over and made signs and marched in the lobby in a circle, and we want to be counted, right? So, of course, we, we put them in the database, and then they were totally elated when we wrote back and said, we'll be sure to include you among our numbers. And they kind of, somebody wrote back and said, you don't even know how important it is for them to be seen in this moment, Right. The enough walkouts, we had um, a, a record come from uh, a group in upstate New York in some city I can't remember the name of, where they had over 2,000 people participating. And Jeremy and I asked people to tell us, if you're submitting a record, tell us what your crowd counting technique is. Like, you can't just tell us we had 2,000 people. We need to know how you came to that number. So, you know, sometimes people say we printed 5,000 flyers. We had 2,600 left. That's how, you know, we know. Some people say we, we um, you know, used a grid counting, click counting method or whatever. Um, some people say we had 50 buttons. We have two left. There are 48 people. Other people snap a photo and say you can count our heads. Um, <clears throat> so... Basically, um, this, this small town in, in upstate New York 
um, this woman said we had like 2,417 people. And I was like, that is a very precise number. What it, and let's look at their crowd counting technique. And they said, we know because we brought our neighbor's son who has autism and he click counted every single person on the street and there were like 700 something. And then when we got to the park, he had a total breakdown because there were like way more people there than had marched. And they had just assembled at the park and so we click counted everybody else. And we know it's a very accurate number. And you know, the, the, the point of this is like, you know, large and diverse moments of, of collective action provide invitations for people, no matter what their ability level is, no matter what their skill is to participate in key ways. And so these are really important things for us to know um, and, and for us to sort of validate in, in people. So that's my big caveat about not trying to say that protest doesn't have an important function. It has, like in many respects, the most important function, which is inviting people into movement. But the problem is, once they're invited into movement, where do they go, right? That's the key problem. The key problem is, how do we keep these people and their incredible skills and their diverse life experience infused in a movement that continues to innovate, that continues to organize, continues to build pressure? And so that brings me to this, this final sort of key point, which is that I actually think the digital organizing approach has really undermined the ability for there to be um, kind of long-term capacity for struggle. Um, and just to, to give you an interesting um, point of comparison, um, in 1968, the Soviet Union invaded and occupied Czechoslovakia um, after what was known as the Prague Spring, uprisings against communist rule uh, there. And six days after the Soviet invasion, which resulted in a crackdown, a few hundred uh, people were killed, and the movement seemed to quickly demobilize. Um, there was organizing, and there was organizing of people, and there was information about what the society was to do uh, under Soviet occupation. So uh, six days later, this underground newspaper uh, published the Ten Commandments um, for the people of Czechoslovakia to follow. And it was this, when a Soviet soldier comes to you, you don't know, don't care, don't tell, don't have, don't know how to, don't give, can't do, can't sell, don't show, do nothing. And basically they said, we will just simply not cooperate and everyone will do this and we will basically continue building our own institutions. We will be self-sufficient. We won't rely on the Soviet Union for anything. We will quietly build the society we are trying to live in. Uh, and you know, you have um, people like Vaclav Havel and other dissidents, uh, so-called writing for the drawer, meaning they were building a very private, local, um, needs-based organizations to help people who were struggling in some area, to help families of dissidents that have been jailed. They were organizing communities for non-cooperation and mass resistance, never going into the streets, right? Never going into the streets. By the time the, the um, Iron Curtain fell, these communities were well-prepared both to um, accelerate the fall of the Soviet Union and, and its influence in their own countries, and also to build the, the, the institutions that they wanted for their societies. So um, other ways that, uh, that movements have uh, tried to sort of organize now are, are much more focused on kind of tactics. Um, so this is uh, from the Egyptian Revolution of, of 2011, a very useful pamphlet that made the rounds um, <coughs> in Xerox copy around Tahrir Square uh, in Alexandria. 
And basically, they, they had some very good information. They, they wanted people to assemble locally where they lived, to walk out um, with their neighbors, to invite people along the way down alleyways to join them. Um, they wanted them to go in small, concentrated roads rather than big thoroughfares, because when you're walking down the, the alleyways in Cairo with 200 of your closest friends, it looks like you have 1,000 people with you, right? Because the optical illusion is such that you're filling the alleyway. And what happens when, when you see 1,000 people walking down an alleyway shouting slogans about freedom and stuff? You're definitely going with them, right? <laughs> like, you're not going to miss this moment. So they, they knew that there was this uh, capacity for using this tactic to draw in more people and then head toward important government buildings, shout positive slogans, and take over the government buildings. Um, so the problem with digitally driven activism is, is of course, the, the first thing is it facilitates government surveillance. Um, it just makes it much easier for governments to know who the key players are, what the plan is, et cetera. Um, like I mentioned, it allows for rapid mobilization, but not necessarily long-term capacity. Um, for, for creating change. Um, the third point, I think, is that um, it facilitates the diffusion of what I would call superficial lessons about nonviolence while underplaying the risks of, of protest and, and demonstrations specifically. So um, the superficial lessons, I would say, are that you know, if people just come to the streets for 17 days, they can you know, create the fall of a dictator, um, which I think is one of the lessons that people sometimes take from some of the more recent movements where what you're seeing, um, like in Egypt in 2011 at that time, was the end game of about a 10-year-long buildup. Um, but it was just the end game. It wasn't the whole game. Um, but definitely, if all you know is that the revolution started on January 25th um, and Mubarak was out by, um, by mid-February, um, then you could come away with the idea um, that it was fairly easy and, and just involved mass demonstrations and sit-ins. Certainly, um, digital media allows governments to mobilize their own uh, <laughs> counter-propaganda, um, which sometimes means denouncing the movement, but sometimes also is just them um, trying to reinforce their own messaging <clears throat> and showing that they have supporters in that. And then, of course, um, there could be demobilizing effects if... Say um, there are incidents of brutality that circulate on YouTube or something like that. Um, that could actually scare people into not wanting to participate. Uh, so it actually helps to spread fear uh, as much as it helps to spread the call for action. Where do we go from here? Um, well, I think that in looking at the trends in the last decade, we should have some hope because I don't think the drivers of success have changed. I just think um, the movements have not necessarily had the ability to realize the drivers of success um, to their full extent. And so if we return to these main lessons, that these campaigns need large, diverse participation, that the purpose of the participation is to create defections, um, to innovate new tactics that allow the movement to shift methods when needed um, and maintain discipline, um, that movements are more likely to, to continue to succeed. So. Um, in order for this to happen, obviously, leadership and organizing are very important. Um, I would say that leading with a strategy instead of planning tactic to tactic is a good operating principle. Uh, and then, um, you know, we know that the opponents of these movements are coordinating and sharing lessons learned. Certainly, movements um, should be coordinating and sharing lessons learned uh, as they navigate these tricky waters here and, and elsewhere. Thanks.
You were just listening to Erica Chenoweth on civil resistance in the 21st century. She spoke at Wellesley College in Massachusetts in January 2020. Erica Chenoweth is professor in human rights and international affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program featuring Erica Chenoweth and for our special book offer, Howard Zinn, Failure to Quit, which includes his famous essay, The Problem is Civil Obedience. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Leonard Cohen. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart came into the station and gave us some suggestions to take CJSW to the next level. Well, I was thinking of sensory deprivation, actually. Um, you know, I mean, when you don't see, usually other senses are heightened. You know, hearing, perhaps. He suggested scripting, recording, and producing content with the studio lights turned off. Error. Error. I wanted to get blindfolds, but um, we couldn't quite get that on, so we just did this, and it was interesting. There were several accidents. And, uh, of course, it didn't sound as good as the idea was. Thanks, Mickey Hart, for helping us reach Next Level Radio, only on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. It's a lesson to me. Saddle Mike's gone to Mohegan Sun. No fun, 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 fun I watched him play some Kokomo And then got sick at the buffet I've been told 
that you've been cold To Dennis, Carl, and Luke Kind remarks for Van Dyke Parks But Dennis, Carl, and Luke Saddle Mike's gone to the bottom line Out of my mind. He beached him for some wonderment. Just fucking smile these boys away. Smile away, smile away, smile away. Wonder.